Hello, welcome to LibriVox's New Releases Podcast Number 7, the new releases for November 2007. I'm Alan Drake, your host for this month. The LibriVox Monthly Podcasts bring you audio previews from our growing catalog. LibriVox provides free audiobooks from texts in the public domain, including fiction, nonfiction, plays, short stories, poetry, children's literature, philosophy and religion, and audiobooks in languages other than English. As of the last day of November 2007, the LibriVox catalog contains 1,069 public domain audiobooks, available for free download every day of the year. 68 of these books were added during the month of November. Well, let's start listening. Here are some of the new fiction releases for November 2007. LibriVox Short Story Collection, Volume 20. The short story collections are of ten short works of fiction in the public domain, read by a variety of LibriVox volunteers. These short stories are great for commuters. You can get free weekly short stories by subscribing to the LibriVox Short Stories podcast on the iTunes Store. His Last Bow by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle In this collection of Sherlock Holmes stories, the great detective continues doing what he does best, averting political scandals, tracking down murderers, and dragging Dr. Watson into unpleasant situations. As always, it's adventurous fun for the rest of us. This book was published in 1917, after the return of Sherlock Holmes. Here's a sample from Chapter 4. Recording by Gazino. As we walked rapidly down Howe Street, I glanced back at the building which we had left. There, dimly outlined at the top window, I could see the shadow of a head, a woman's head, gazing tensely, rigidly, out into the night, waiting with breathless suspense for the renewal of that interrupted message. At the doorway of the house Street's flats, a man, muffled in a cravat and greatcoat, was leaning against the railing. He started as the hall light fell upon our faces. "'Holmes!' he cried. "'Why, Gregson!' said my companion as he shook hands with the Scotland Yard detective. Journeys end with lovers' meetings. What brings you here? The same reasons that bring you, I expect, said Gregson. How you got on to it, I can't imagine. Different threads, but leading up to the same tangle. I've been taking the signals. Signals? Yes, from that window. They broke off in the middle. We came over to see the reason, but since it is safe in your hands, I see no object in continuing the business. Wait a bit cried Gregson eagerly. "'I'll do you this justice, Mr. Holmes, that I was never in a case yet that I didn't feel stronger for having you on my side.'" Another story by Arthur Conan Doyle is The Lost World, read by Mark Smith. Imagine a strange tropical place that is almost inaccessible. Time appears to have stood still there. Species of animal and plant life, not seen elsewhere on earth except in the fossil record, inhabit this place. The lakes heave with the shapes of huge gray bulks moving under the surface. The woods are places where chittering cries move about above your head, as powerful apes move swiftly in the canopy of leaves. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. This is read by Sibella Denton. Lord Ernest Barrow and Captain Anthony Fenton think they know a secret, a secret that could make them both rich. En route they are sidetracked by Sir Marcus Antonius Lark, a woman who thinks she's Cleopatra reincarnate, a gilded rose of an American heiress, and Mrs. Jones. A mysterious Irish woman with a past. Dear Enemy by Jean Webster Dear Enemy is the sequel to Jean Webster's novel Daddy Longlegs. The story is presented in a series of letters written by Sally McBride, Judy Abbott's college mate in Daddy Longlegs. Among the recipients of these letters are the president of the orphanage where Sally is filling in until a new director can be installed. His wife, Judy Abbott of Daddy Longlegs, 
and the orphanage's doctor to whom sally addresses her letters dear enemy let's take a break to review a few of the science fiction titles short science fiction collections volume one and two science fiction abbreviated sf or sci-fi with varying punctuations in case is a broad genre of fiction that often involves sociological and technological speculations based on current or future science or technology this is a readers selected collection of short stories originally published between 1931 and 1963 that entered the u.s public domains when their copyright was not renewed here's a sample from bread overhead by fritz lieber as read by mark f smith as a blisteringly hot but guaranteed weather-controlled future summer day dawned on the mississippi valley the walking mills of puffy products spiked a loaf in one operation began to tread delicately on their centipede legs across the wheat fields of kansas the walking mills resembled fat metal serpents rather larger than those chinese paper dragons animated by files of men in procession sensory robot devices in their nose informed them that the waiting wheat had reached ripe perfection as they advanced their heads swung lazily from side to side very much like snakes gobbling the yellow grain in their throats it was threshed the chaff bundled and burped aside for pickup by the crawl trucks of a chemical corporation the kernels quick-dried and blown along into the mighty chests of the machines there the tyrants also released in november was short science fiction collection volume two the return by h beam piper and john j mcguire Two hundred years after a global nuclear war, two scientists from a research outpost that largely survived the cataclysm discover a settlement of humans who have managed to maintain their civilization despite ferocious cannibal neighbors, the Scourers. However, the explorers must turn detective in order to understand the mystery of their host's philosophy and religion. Here's a sample as read by Renard T. Fox. Altamont cast a quick, routine glance at the instrument panels and then looked down through the transparent nose of the helicopter at the yellow-brown river 500 feet below. Next, he scraped the last morsel from his plate and ate it. What did you make this out of, Jim? he asked. I hope you kept notes while you were concocting it. It's good. The two smoked pork chops left over from yesterday evening, Luden said, and that bowl of rice that's been taking up space in the refrigerator the last couple of days, together with a little edge powder and some milk. I ground the chops up and mixed them with the rice and the other stuff, then added some bacon to make grease to fry it in. Altamont chuckled. That was Luden's all right. He could take a few leftovers, mess them together, pop them in the skillet, and have a meal that would turn the chef back at the fork green with envy. He filled his cup and offered. The First Men in the Moon by H. G. Wells, read by Mark F. Smith. Britain won the moon race. Decades before Neil Armstrong took his great leap for mankind, two intrepid adventurers from Lipney, England, journeyed there using not a rocket, but an anti-gravity coating. Mr. Bedford, who narrates the tale, tells of how he fell in with electric inventor Mr. Caver, grew to believe in his researches, helped him to build a sphere for traveling in space, and then partnered with him in an adventure. And now back to standard fiction. Fifty Famous Stories Retold by James Baldwin Read by Laura Caldwell here is a collection of short stories that gives a snapshot into the life of a legendary hero or an event in history. Hear how Alexander the Great tamed Bucephalus, the kindness of Dr. Goldsmith, William Tell, George Washington and his hatchet, King Alfred, as well 
as many other interesting tales. The Peterkin Papers by Lucretia P. Hale. This is read by Entada. The Peterkins were a lovable but comical inept family that possess ingenuity, logic, resourcefulness, and energy, but not common sense. The general formula is that the family tries to solve some problem in an appealingly roundabout way, fails, and is eventually rescued by the wise old lady from Philadelphia, who always cuts the Gordian knot with some effective but prosaic solution. Bartleby the Scrivener by Herman Melville A Story of Wall Street the story first appeared anonymously in Putnam's Magazine in two parts. The first part appeared in November 1853, and the conclusion was published in December 1853. It was reprinted in Melville's The Pizza Tales in 1856, with minor textual alterations. Here's a sample, as read by Bob Tassinari. I am a rather elderly man. The nature of my avocations for the last thirty years has brought me into more than ordinary contact with what would seem an interesting and somewhat singular set of men, of whom as yet nothing that I know of has ever been written. I mean the law copyists or scriveners. I have known very many of them professionally and privately, and if I pleased, could relate diverse histories at which good-natured gentlemen might smile and sentimental souls might weep but I waive the biographies of all other Scriveners for a few passages in the life of Bartleby, who was a Scrivener of the strangest I ever saw or heard of. While of other law copyists I might write the complete life, of Bartleby nothing of that sort can be done. I believe that no materials exist for a full and satisfactory biography of this man. It is an irreparable loss to literature. Bartleby was one of those beings of whom nothing is ascertainable. Mike, A Public School Story by P.G. Woodhouse This novel introduces the characters Mike Jackson and Smith, who are featured in several of Woodhouse's later works. It shows how the two characters first met each other as teenagers at boarding school. As Smith doesn't appear until about halfway through this book, it was later released as two separate books, Mike at Rinkin and Mike and Smith. Here's a sample, as read by Deborah Lynn. It was a morning in the middle of April, and the Jackson family were consequently breakfasting in comparative silence. The cricket season had not begun, and except during the cricket season they were in the habit of devoting their powerful minds at breakfast almost exclusively to the task of vittling against the labors of the day. In May, June, July, and August, the silence was broken. The three grown-up Jacksons played regularly in first-class cricket, and there was always keen competition among their brothers and sisters for the copy of the Sportsman, which was to be found on the hall table with the letters. Whoever got it usually gloated over it in silence till urged wrathfully by the multitude to let them know what had happened. When it would appear that Joe had notched his seventh century or that Reggie had been run out when he was just getting set, or, as sometimes occurred, that that ass Frank had dropped Fry or Hayward in the slips before he had scored, with the result that the spared expert had made a couple of hundred and was still going strong. A Master of Mysteries by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustache It so happened that the circumstances of fate allowed me to follow my own bent in the choice of profession. From my earliest youth, the weird, the mysterious, had an irresistible fascination for me. Having private means, I resolved to follow my unique inclinations, and I am now known to all of my friends as a professional exposer of ghosts, and one who can clear away the mysteries of most hallucinations. North and South, Part 2 by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. This book is a social novel that tries to show the industrial North and its conflicts in the mid-nineteenth century as seen by an outsider, a socially sensitive lady from the South. Here the heroine, Margaret Hale, is the daughter of a nonconformist minister 
who moves to the fictional industrial town of Milton after leaving the Church of England. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Little Women is the classic story of the March family, which consists of Mr. and Mrs. March and their four girls, practical yet fashion-conscious Meg, who longs for the nice things they used to have, rambunctious bookworm Joe, who wants to become a writer and wishes she were born a boy, shy and quiet, home-loving Beth, who loves to play the piano and play with her kittens. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen Pride and Prejudice is the most famous of Jane Austen's novels, and its opening is one of the most famous lines in English literature. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man, in possession of a good fortune, must be in want of a wife. Its manuscript was first written between 1796 and 1797. It was initially called First Impressions, but was never published under that title. The Shadows by George MacDonald Old Ralph Wrinkleman made his living by comic sketches, and all but lost it again by tragic poems. So he was just the man to be chosen King of the Fairies. George MacDonald was a Scottish author, poet, and Christian minister. Though no longer well known, his works, particularly his fairy tales and fantasy novels, have inspired admiration by notable persons. Horror Story Collection 2 We aim to unsettle you a little, to cut through the pink cushion of illusion that shields you from the horrible realities of life. Here are the waking dead, the fetid pools of slime, the howls in the night that you thought you had confined to your more unpleasant dreams. Here's a sample, as read by Maxim Lenyadin. Howard Phillips Lovecraft, Ex Oblivione When the last days were upon me, and the ugly trifles of existence began to drive me to madness like the small drops of water that torturers let fall ceaselessly upon one spot of their victim's body. I loved the irradiate refuge of sleep. In my dreams I found a little of the beauty I had vainly sought in life and wandered through old gardens and enchanted woods. Once, when the wind was soft and scented, I heard the south calling, and sailed endlessly and languorously under strange stars. Once, when the gentle rain fell, I glided in a barge down a sunless stream under the earth, till I reached another world of purple twilight, iridescent arbors, and undying roses. The Golden Age by Kenneth Graham The Golden Age is a collection of reminiscences of childhood, written by Kenneth Graham and originally published in book form in 1895. Widely praised upon its first appearance, Algernon Charles Swinburne, writing in the Daily Chronicle, called it one of the few books which are well-nigh too praiseworthy for praise. The book has come to be regarded as a classic in his genre. Typical of his culture and of his era, Graham cast his reminiscences in imagery and metaphor rooted in the culture of ancient Greece. To the children whose impressions are recorded in the book, the adults in their lives are Olympians while the chapters titled The Argonauts refer to Perseus, Apollo, Psyche, and similar figures of Greek mythology. Graham's reminiscences in the Golden Age and in the later Dream Days were notable for their conception of a world where children are locked in perpetual warfare with the adult Olympians, who have wholly forgotten how it feels to be young, a theme later explored by J. M. Barry and other authors. And now, here's an odd little collection that hovers between fiction and non-fiction. Insomnia Collection, Volume 1 Soporific Dullness 
is in the ear of the listener and what's tedium incarnate in one person will be another person's passion and delight however it is hoped that at least one from the range of topics here presented will lull the busy mind to a state of sweet sleep and now on to non-fiction we'll start with some biographical work the right way to do wrong by harry houdini harry houdini master illusionist and contortionist unmasks the various ways that criminals take advantage of their victims here is a sample as read by lee ann howlett preface there is an underworld a world of cheat and crime a world whose highest good is successful evasion of the laws of the land you who live your life in placid respectability know but little of the real life of the denizens of this world the daily records of the police courts the startling disclosures of fraud and swindle in newspaper stories are about all the public know of this world of crime of the real thoughts and feelings of the criminal of the terrible fascination which binds him to his nefarious career of the thousands yea tens of thousands of undiscovered crimes and unpunished criminals you know but little the object of this book is twofold first to safeguard the public against the practices of the criminal classes by exposing their various tricks and explaining the adroit methods by which they seek to defraud knowledge is power is an old saying I might paraphrase it in this case by saying, knowledge is safety. I wish to put the public on its guard, so that honest folks may be able to detect and protect themselves from the dishonest, who labor under the false impression that it is easier to live dishonestly than to thrive by honest means. In the second place, I trust this book will afford entertaining as well as instructive reading, and that the facts and experiences, the exposés and explanations here set forth, may serve to interest you, as well as put you in a position where you will be less liable to fall a victim. Selected Letters of Beethoven by Ludwig von Beethoven A selection of Beethoven's letters from the compilation of Dr. Ludwig Knoll and translated by Lady Grace Wallace. Peter the Great by Jacob Abbott Peter was born in 1672 in Moscow within the walls of the Kremlin. Fedor III, the current Tsar and Peter's half-brother, died ten years later. As Fyodor did not leave any children, a dispute arose over who should inherit the throne. Peter's other half-brother, Ivan V, was the next for the throne, but he was chronically ill and infirmed of mind. Consequently, a council of Russian nobles chose the ten-year-old Peter to become Tsar. His mother became regent. But one of Alexei's daughters by his first marriage, Sophia, led a rebellion of Russia's elite military corps. In the subsequent conflict, many of Peter's relatives and friends were murdered. Peter eyewitnessed the butchery of one of his uncles by a mob. Here is a sample as read by Russ Lemker. Preface There are very few persons who have not heard of the fame of Peter the Great, the founder, as he is generally regarded by mankind, of Russian civilization. The celebrity, however, of the great Muscovite sovereign among young persons is due, in a great measure, to the circumstance of his having repaired personally to Holland, in the course of his efforts to introduce the industrial arts among his people, in order to study himself the art and mystery of shipbuilding, and of his having worked with his own hands in a shipyard there. The little shop where Peter pursued these practical studies still stands in Sardam, a shipbuilding town not far from Amsterdam. The building is of wood and is now much decayed, but to preserve it from farther injury, it has been encased in a somewhat larger building of brick, and it is visited annually by great numbers of curious travelers. The whole history of Peter, as might be expected from the indications of character developed by this incident, forms a narrative that is full of interest and instruction for all. 
Far Away and Long Ago by W. H. Hudson William Henry Hudson was an author, naturalist, and ornithologist. Hudson was born of U.S. parents living in Buenos Aires, Argentina, when he spent his youth studying the local flora and fauna, and observing both natural and human dramas, on what was then a lawless frontier. Far Away and Long Ago is a classic memoir of a boy fascinated by nature on the pampas in the nineteenth century. And now on to a change of pace for non-fiction. Be forewarned, this could be addictive. Chocolate, or an Indian drink, by Antonio Comanera de Ledesma. Here the author sings the praises of chocolate. By the wise and moderate use whereof, health is preserved, sickness diverted, and cured, especially the plague of the guts. Here's an example, as read by Esther and Laura Ann Walden. Vulgarily called the new disease, fluxes, consumptions, and coughs of the lungs, with sundry and other diseases. By it also, conception is caused, the birth hastened and facilitated, beauty gained and continued. Written originally in Spanish by Antonio Comanero. Translated by Captain James Wadsworth. To the gentry of the English nation. Sirs, the ensuing tract, I, many years since translated, out of the original Spanish, and dedicated to the right honourable Edward, Lord Conway, etc., by whose noble patronage the confection whereof it treats, together with itself, were first admitted into the English court, where they received the approbation of the most noble and judicious those days afforded since which time it has been universally sought for and thirsted after by people of all degrees especially those of the female sex and first i will bring the best receipt and the most to the purpose that i could find out to every one hundred cacaos you must put two cods of the long red pepper of which i have spoken before and are called in the indian tongue chilparlagua and instead of those of the Indies, you may take those of Spain, which are broadest and least hot. One handful of aniseed or ajuelas, which are otherwise called pinacaxlidos, and two of the flowers called mechasuchil, if the belly be bound. And now on to some historical works. Legends of the Jews, Volume 1, by Lewis Ginsberg. Rabbi Louis Ginsburg was one of the outstanding Talmudists of the 20th century. Born in 1873 in Lithuania, he died in 1953 in New York City. History of the United States, Volume 3, by Charles A. Beard and Mary Ritter Beard. Charles Beard was the most influential American historian in the early 20th century. He published hundreds of monographs, textbooks, and interpretive studies in both history and political science. He graduated from DePaul University in 1898, where he met and eventually married Mary Ritter, one of the founders of the first Greek letter societies for women. Here's an example from the book, as read by Christy Nowak. Foreign Influences and Domestic Politics The French Revolution in this exciting period, when all America was distracted by partisan disputes, a storm broke in Europe, the epic-making French Revolution, which not only shook the thrones of the Old World, but stirred to its depths the young republic of the New World. The first scene in this dramatic affair occurred in the spring of 1789, a few days after Washington was inaugurated. The King of France, Louis XVI, driven into bankruptcy by extravagance and costly wars, was forced to resort to his people for financial help. Accordingly, he called, for the first time in more than 150 years, a meeting of the National Parliament, the Estates General, composed of representatives of the three estates, the clergy, nobility, and commoners. Acting under powerful leaders, the commoners, or third estate, swept aside the clergy and nobility and resolved themselves into a national assembly, this stirred the country to its depths. Great events followed in swift succession. 
on july fourteenth seventeen eighty nine the bastille an old royal prison symbol of the king's absolutism was stormed by a paris crowd and destroyed on the night of august fourth the feudal privileges of the nobility were abolished by the national assembly amid great excitement a few days later came the famous declaration of the rights of man proclaiming the sovereignty of the people and the privileges of citizens in the autumn of seventeen ninety one louis the sixteenth history of england from the ascension of james the second volume two chapter seven by thomas babington macaulay chronicles of canada volume eight the great fortress a chronicle of louisbourg seventeen twenty to seventeen sixty louisbourg was no mere isolated stronghold which could be lost or won without affecting the wider issues of overseas domination on the contrary it was a necessary link in the chain of waterside posts which connected france with america by way of the atlantic the st lawrence the great lakes and the mississippi who was who five thousand b c to nineteen fourteen by Irwin Leslie Gordon. A short, humorous biography of famous people from 5000 BC to 1914. Here from the introduction. The editor begs leave to inform the public that only persons who can produce proper evidence of their demise will be admitted to who was who. Press agent notices or complimentary comments are absolutely excluded and those offering to pay for the insertion of names will be prosecuted. As you can see, that's a humorous book. Richard of Jamestown, A Story of the Virginia Colony by James Otis This book was particularly written for children with the purpose to show them the daily life of Virginia colonists. It was written from the viewpoint of a young boy named Richard Mutton. And now on to poetry. Short poetry collections 52 and 53. Each of these collections contains 20 poems selected and read by LibriVox volunteers. They range from poems by Robert Frost, Walt Whitman, D. H. Lawrence, John Keats, Thomas Hardy, Lord Byron, Wordsworth, Sandberg, and many, many lesser known but excellent poets. The weekly and bi-weekly poems for November were The Cremation of Sam McGee by Robert W. Service, Nephrolydia by Algernon Charles Swinburne, The Secret by Cosmo Monkhouse, and The Kraken by Alfred Lord Tennyson, The Hour of Twilight by George William Russell, and Ode to Autumn by John Keats. In each of these collections, LibriVox volunteers bring to you many different recordings of a select poem. It's lots of fun to listen to the different versions, particularly if the poem is one of your favorites. The Bab Ballads by W. S. Gilbert, read by Graham Redman. The Bab Ballads is a collection of light verse by W. S. Gilbert, illustrated with his own comic drawings. Gilbert wrote the ballads before he became famous for his comic opera librettos with Arthur Sullivan. In writing the Bab Ballads, Gilbert developed his unique topsy-turvy style, where the humor was derived by setting up a ridiculous premise and working out its logical consequences. And now on to children's books. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll Alice was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank, and of having nothing to do, and from that moment outward we drift with Alice into another world. When she sees a white rabbit as it runs through the tall grass, looking worried at his watch, she runs after it and drops into a strange dream. Here are two brief samples as read by David Grimes and Peter Yearsley, respectively. Alice was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank and of having nothing to do. Once or twice she had peeped into the book her sister was reading, but it had no pictures or conversations in it. And what is the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures or conversations? So she was considering in her own mind, as well she could for the hot day made her feel very sleepy and stupid, whether the pleasure of making a daisy chain would be worth the trouble of getting up and picking the daisies. 
when suddenly a white rabbit with pink eyes ran close by her. There was nothing so very remarkable in that, nor did Alice think it so very much out of the ordinary to hear the rabbit say to itself, Oh dear, oh dear, I shall be late. When she thought about it afterwards, it occurred to her that she ought to have wondered at this, but at the time it all seemed quite natural. But when the rabbit actually took a watch out of its waistcoat pocket and looked at it and then hurried on, Alice started to her feet, for it flashed across her mind that she had never before seen a rabbit with either a waistcoat pocket or a watch to take out of it, and burning with curiosity, she ran across the field after it, and fortunately was just in time to see it pop down a large rabbit hole under the hedge. In another moment, down went Alice after it, never once considering how in the world she was to get out again. "'Curiouser and curiouser,' cried Alice. She was so much surprised that for the moment she quite forgot how to speak good English. Now I'm opening out like the largest telescope that ever was. Goodbye, feet. For when she looked down at her feet, they seemed to be almost out of sight. They were getting so far off. Oh, my poor little feet. I wonder who will put on your shoes and stockings for you now, dears. I'm sure I shan't be able. I shall be a great deal too far off to trouble myself about you. You must manage the best way you can. But I must be kind to them, thought Alice. Or perhaps they won't walk the way I want to go. Let me see. I'll give them a new pair of boots every Christmas. And she went on planning to herself how she would manage it. They must go by the carrier, she thought. And how funny it'll seem, sending presents to one's own feet. And how odd the directions will look. Alice's right foot, Esquire. Hearthrug? Near the fender, with Alice's love. Oh dear, what nonsense I'm talking. Just then, her head struck against the roof of the hall. Raggedy Ann Stories by Johnny Gruel. The author gave his daughter, Marcella, a rag doll, on which he has drawn an eternally smiling face. Marcella and Raggedy Ann become inseparable, and inspired the author to write the Raggedy Ann Stories which was sold with its very own Raggedy Ann doll. Sadly, Marcella died at age 13 after complications from a smallpox vaccine, but the author continued writing about Raggedy Ann. Here's a sample as read by Mary Anderson. One day the dolls were left all to themselves. Their little mistress had placed them all around the room and told them to be nice children while she was away. And there they sat, and never even so much as wiggled a finger, until their mistress had left the room. Then the soldier dolly turned his head and solemnly winked at Raggedy Ann. And when the front gate clicked, and the dollies knew they were alone in the house, they all scrambled to their feet. "'Now let's have a good time,' cried the tin soldier. "'Let's all go in search of something to eat.' "'Yes, let's all go in search of something to eat,' cried all the other dollies. "'When Mistress had me out playing with her this morning,' said Raggedy Ann, "'she carried me by a door near the back of the house, "'and I smelled something which smelled as if it would taste delicious.' "'Then you lead the way, Raggedy Ann,' cried the French dolly. "'I think it would be a good plan to elect Raggedy Ann as our leader on this expedition,' said the Indian doll." At this, all the other dolls clapped their hands together and shouted, Hurrah! Raggedy Ann will be our leader. So Raggedy Ann, very proud indeed to have the confidence and love of all... Grandma Janice's Poems and Stories A collection of children's poems and stories as read by Janice Green. The poems and stories in this collection were selected with the reader's grandchildren in mind. The Raggedy Ann and the Little Orphaned Annie both by James Whitcomb Riley, the Hoosier poet, were favorites of the reader when she was a child on a farm in Indiana. Her favorites were picked up along the way as she read them to her own children and to her students. Wildlife in Woods and Fields by Arabella B. Buckley Here is a collection of stories that will encourage children to become little naturalists and explore the majesty of the great outdoors. This is science taught in such a charming, delightful way that children will learn 
without even realizing it. Here's a sample, as read by Laura Caldwell. We three friends, Peter, Peggy, and Paul, walk to school together every day. We all love flowers and animals, and each day we try to find something new. Peter is a little boy. He can only just read, but he has sharp eyes. He sees most things in the hedges. Peggy's father is a gamekeeper. She knows the birds and where to find their nests. Paul comes from the farm. He is a big boy and will soon be a teacher. We meet at the big pond under the elm trees. Then we walk along a narrow lane, across the common, through the big wood, and over three fields to the village school. In the pond we find all kinds of creatures. In the lane are beetles and mice, flowers and berries, birds' nests, and wasps' nests. On the common the spiders spin their webs on the yellow gorse. In the ploughed field the lark hides her nest. In the grass field there are buttercups and daisies. In the cornfield there are poppies and cornflowers. Paul is going to write down for us all we see and put it in a book. And now on to this month's philosophy and religion. The Golden Sayings of Epictetus, translated by Hastings Crosley. Aphorisms from the Greek Stoic philosopher, so far as it is known. Epictetus himself wrote nothing. Epictetus focused more on ethics than the early Stoics had. Repeatedly attributing his ideas to Socrates, he held that our aim was to be masters of our own lives. The role of the Stoic teacher, according to Epictetus, was to encourage his students to learn, first of all, the true nature of things, which is invariable, inviolable, and valid for all human beings, without exception. The Apology of Socrates by Plato Plato's account of Socrates' defense at his trial for corrupting the youth is a classic summation of his teacher's life and mission, centered in Socrates' most famous line, The unexamined life is not worth living. Essays in Radical Empiricism by William James James was a pioneering American psychologist and philosopher. He wrote influential books on the young science of psychology, educational psychology, psychology of religious experience, and mysticism, and the philosophies of pragmatism and radical empiricism. The Theory of Social Revolutions by Brooks Adams Grandson of John Quincy Adams and brother to Henry Brooks Adams, Brooks Adams was an American historian and a critic of capitalism. He believed that commercial civilizations rise and fall in predictable cycles. First, masses of people draw together in large population centers and engage in commercial activities. As the desire for wealth grows, they discard spiritual and creative values. Their greed leads to distrust and dishonesty, and eventually the society crumbles. He predicted America's economic supremacy in 1900, and that New York would become the center for world trade. Principles of Economics, Book Two, Preliminary Survey by Alfred Marshall. Marshall began writing this treatise in 1881, and he spent much of the next decade working on it. His plan for the work gradually extended to a two-volume compilation of the whole of economic thought. The first volume was published in 1890 to world acclaim that established him as one of the leading economists of his time. It brought the ideas of supply and demand, of marginal utility, and the cost of production into a coherent whole, and became the dominant economic textbook in England for a long period. The first introductory book, gives the author's overview of the field of economics. Wage, Labor, and Capital by Karl Marx Originally written as a series of newspaper articles in 1847, this book was intended to give a short overview, for popular consumption, of Marx's central theories regarding the economic relationships between workers and capitalists. Here's a sample, as read by Karl Manchester. This pamphlet first appeared in the form of a series of leading articles in the Neuer Rheinische Zeitung, beginning on April 4, 1849. 
The text is made up from lectures delivered by Marx before the German Workingmen's Club of Brussels in 1847. The series was never completed. The promise, quote, to be continued, end quote, at the end of the editorial in number 269 of the newspaper, remained unfilled in consequence of the precipitous events of that time, the invasion of Hungary by the Russians, and the uprisings in Dresden, Iserlohn, Elberfeld, the Palatinate, and in Baden which led to the suppression of the paper on May the 19th, 1849. And among the papers left by Marx, no manuscript of any continuation of these articles has been found. Wage, Labour and Capital has appeared as an independent publication in several editions, the last of which was issued by the Swiss Cooperative Printing Association in Hottingen, Zurich, in 1884. An Enquiry Concerning Human Understanding by David Hume this is a shortened and simplified version of Hume's masterpiece. It sought to reach a wider audience and to dispel some of the virulent criticism addressed towards the former book. In it, Hume explains his theory of epistemology and argues against other current theories, including those of John Locke, George Berkeley, and Nicholas Malebranche. Hurlbut's Story of the Bible Part 1 and Part 2 by Jesse Lyman Hurlbut Some years ago, the editor of an English magazine sent a communication to the hundred greatest men in Great Britain, asking them this question. If for any reason you were to spend a year absolutely alone, in a prison for instance, and could select from your library three volumes to be taken with you as companions in your period of retirement, please to inform us what those three books would be. The inquiry was sent to peers of the realm, prominent leaders in politics, judges, authors, manufacturers, merchants, gentlemen of leisure, men who would respect every aspect of successful life. Here is a sample, as read by Kalinda. Again, many of the people of Israel were drawn away from the worship of the Lord, and began to live like the people around them, praying to idols and doing wickedly. And again the Lord left them to suffer for their sins. A Canaanite king in the north, whose name was Jabin, sent his army down to conquer them under the command of his general, Sisera. In Sisera's army were many chariots of iron drawn by horses, while soldiers in the chariots shot arrows and threw spears at the Israelites. The men of Israel were not used to horses, and greatly feared these war chariots. All the northern tribes in the land of Israel fell under the power of King Jabin and his general Sisera and their rule was very harsh and severe. This was the fourth of these oppressions, and it bore most heavily upon the people in the north. But it led those who suffered from it to turn from their idols, and to call upon the Lord God of Israel. At that time a woman was ruling as judge over a large part of the land, the only woman among the fifteen judges who, one after another, ruled the Israelites. Works in Languages Other Than English Max Havilar, or the Coffee Auctions of the Dutch Trading Company. Here is a culturally and socially significant 1860s novel, which was to play a key role in shaping and modifying Dutch colonial policy in the Dutch East Indies in the 19th and early 20th century. Here is a sample, as read by Anna Simon. Gerechtsdienaar. Meneer de rechter, daar is de man die Barbertje vermoord heeft. Rechter, die man moet hangen. Hoe heeft hij dat aangelegd? Gerechtsdienaar. Hij heeft daarin kleine stukjes gesneden en ingezouten. Rechter. Daaraan heeft hij zeer verkeerd gedaan. Hij moet hangen. Lotario. Rechter, ik heb Barbertje niet vermoord. Ik heb haar gevoed en gekleed en verzorgd. Er zijn getuigen die verklaren zullen dat ik een goed mens ben en geen moordenaar. Rechter. Man, ge moet hangen. Ge verzwaart uw misdaad door eigen waan. Het past niet aan iemand die, van iets beschuldigd is, zich voor een goed mens te houden. Lotario Maar, rechter, er zijn getuigen die het zullen bevestigen, en daar ik nu beschuldigd ben van moord. Rechter Ge moet hangen. Ge hebt barbertje stuk gesneden, ingezouten en zijt ingenomen met uzelf. Drie kapitale delicten. A Thousand and One Nights, translated into French. Here's a sample. Le sultan se coucha avec Scheherazade sur une estrade fort élevée, 
et dinarzade dans un lit qu'on lui avait préparé au bas de l'estrade le lendemain avant que le jour parût dinarzade ne manqua pas de lui dire ma chère sœur si vous ne dormez pas je vous supplie de me raconter un de ces contes agréables que vous savez sire quand le marchand vit que le génie lui allait trancher la tête il fit un grand cri ma sœur lui dit dinarzade je vous avoue que ce commencement me charme ce qui reste à raconter en est le meilleur répondit la sultane en même temps elle poursuivit de cette manière que signifie tout ceci dit-il oh jour heureux oh jour de bonnes rencontres mes sœurs qu'attendez-vous pour le décharger puisque vous me faites un si grand honneur c'est une grâce dont je me souviendrai éternellement je vois bien dit le génie que vous me bravez l'un et l'autre vous connaîtrez tous deux de quoi je suis capable scheherazade voulait poursuivre son récit mais remarquant qu'il était jour elle cessa de parler Chariard. Thank you for listening. To listen to more samples, visit the LibriVox website to get the links to all of our audio feeds. Every LibriVox recording contains the following statement. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. You're always welcome to visit the LibriVox site. To download audiobooks and shorter works, to join the open forum, and yes, to volunteer. We have hundreds of friendly volunteers from all over the world, every continent, helping to produce free audiobooks, each volunteering in her own way. This podcast's royalty free music selections are titled First Snowfall and 80s Dance Pad. Both are Apple GarageBand loops. Thanks, Apple. See you all soon.